Serpents from the Garden of Eos Portion 2 The Atlantis of Hellas in the Middle Sea Section A Atlantis Rising Subsection 2 Atlantis of Greek Myth Episode B Titans and Giants Chaos is God. God is Chaos. Uranus and Gaia were the first physical emanations of God Chaos into the universe of existence in this creation. Chaos is the one unity of God in spirit form beyond this world of being. For the Greeks of later days, Uranus was the sky and of male gender, while Gaia was the earth and of female gender. These first physical emanations of supreme chaos into the world of existent being are the same as the Egyptian gods Anu and Nu. Anu was the primordial Egyptian god of the day and Nu was the goddess of the night. Uranus was originally Anu and Gaia was originally Nu. The equality between Greek Gaia and Egyptian Nu is easier to see when it is remembered that Nu was also a goddess of the earth as well as the night. Aristophanes is almost correct with his description of creation in the comedy Birds. At the beginning, there was only Chaos, Nyx, Dark Erebus, and Deep Tartaros. Yeah, Air, and Uranus had no existence. Firstly, black-winged Nyx laid a germless egg in the bosom of the infinite deeps of Erebus. And from this, after the revolution of long ages sprang the graceful Eros with his glittering golden wings, swift as the whirlwinds of the tempest. He mated in deep Tartaros with dark chaos, winged like himself, and this hatched forth our tribe, the birds, which was the first to see the light. Aristophanes, Birds, lines 
A portion of the comedy here is the fact that almost everyone who writes of the Greek creation myth gets it slightly different. Aristophanes makes his comedic intention clear at the end of this passage when he has the wounded speaker claim that his tribe was first created and first to see the light. Therefore, what the speaker says before may be somewhat doubtful, though the version of creation here given by Aristophanes is very similar to that of Hesiod's and his theogony. The obviously ludicrous point of the entire speech made by the bird spokesman is the fact that the bird claims they were the first tribe to see the light of creation. This biased bit of natural pride-filled theory is obviously nonsensical based on the bird's own speech relating the circumstances of the creation. The entirety of the beginning of existence takes place in the darkness of the abyss, the hellish chaos of the black void where Nyx first came into being. The bird, though, misses all these points of divine darkness, of chaos, Nyx, Tartarus, and Erebus. Instead of the creation from the dark, the bird spokesman sees only the glittering golden wings of Eros, Faunis, and the wings of Chaos and Nyx, black-winged Nyx, who lays the egg of creation in the deep of Erebus. Wings and an egg are enough for the bird, who then quite naturally claims priority for his tribe in the creation, which must eventually produce some sort of light. Birds is an Aristophanic reduction of Solaris myth to the absurdity of an outsider's viewpoint, a spectator who has no sympathy for Solaris beliefs or myth. What Birds does for the comedic appraisal of Solaris beliefs is play Frogs does for the Setian Dionysian Nocturnal in nearly the same vein of humor with the god Dionysus making a descent to the underworld in the disguise of Heracles. What Aristophanes seems to be saying with his preposterous religious comedies is not what it appears to be. His point is not that the religion of nature is a false one. His point seems to be, rather instead, that the natural religion must be understood correctly, or else it becomes preposterous. 
So as to illustrate this fact, Aristophanes depicts it in his plays the exactly wrong view of natural religion. He gives them to the audience from a simplistic, naive point of view. A large portion of the comedy in Frogs, for instance, is that the god Dionysus can laugh at himself. The illusion of drama in the real world beyond the theater is so nearly perfect that the naive point of view seems to be actual for many people. This seems to be the real humor of frogs and birds that the audience in Aristophanes are laughing with. It is not that Aristophanes disbelieves his philosophical religion of nature in the drama. It is rather instead because he understands the difficulty of believing in it from outside the theater that he presents it in such a preposterous fashion. Aristophanes is both laughing at and with the uninitiated within the same comedy. Much of the laughter in Frogs is charmed from the audience when some unwitting stupid fellow comes unknowingly in contact with the god. One such is the stiff on his path to a funeral and eventually hell. The corpse rises at meeting Dionysus, but then attempts to sell his services by carrying the god's luggage. The delivery line comes when the corpse ultimately refuses to carry the Dionysian luggage because the god didn't offer him enough money for his services. That's it. Carrying luggage is worth more than that. I suppose I'll stay on my way to hell then. And the stiff is carried off stage, once more reclining peacefully upon his coffin. Frogs, 197 to 209, paraphrased. That Aristophanes was an initiate and believer in the natural religion of night may perhaps be deduced from the speech in birds. Most sources for the Greek creation myth give both the goddess Gaia and the goddess Nyx as separate goddesses when proceeding with the different stages of creation. Hesiod does the separation of the goddess into different personages when giving his account of the myth. Verily, at first, chaos came to be, but next, wide-bosomed earth. Hesiod, Theogony, 116. Chaos and earth are the first of the gods in existence. Tartaros and Eros come next, 
And then in another emanation from chaos comes Erebus and night. From chaos came forth Erebus and black night, but of night were born Aether and day, whom she conceived and bare from union and love with Erebus. Theogony 120-125 Compare Hesiod's first creation with the version given by Aristophanes. At the beginning there was only Chaos, Nyx, Dark Erebus, and Deep Tartaros, Ge, Gaia, Air, and Uranus had no existence. Birds, 834-837 Of course, you could interpret Hesiod's beginning to be the same as Aristophanes. Hesiod merely speaking of Nyx, firstly, as being the earth goddess, and then giving her other attributes and this may have been Hesiod's intention of making them the same goddess, though there are many other sources for the myth that make them seem different. Of course, you could interpret Hesiod's beginning to be the same as Aristophanes. Hesiod merely speaking of Nyx, firstly, as being the earth goddess and then giving her other attributes. And this may have been Hesiod's intention of making them the same goddess, though there are many other sources for the myth that make them seem different. Aristophanes, when he gives his version, the creation is easier to understand, and he gives Chaos and Nyx first, expressly saying that Gaia and Uranus and Air had not yet come into existence when Chaos and Nyx did it first. This is important because many later writers like to use Gaia as a synonym for Nyx and it is not as clear as it is in Aristophanes that Nyx was first and Gaia was simply one of her attributes. Chaos was a word originally used for the dark primeval abyss that was in existence before anything else had come into being. It was also a word used to denote a void or non-being or absolute nothing. Greek myth uses the word in the sense of the spirit of God before the emanation into creation. Perhaps the word chaos comes into Greek by way of the Egyptian, which had several words spelled nearly like this one, with similar meanings, either of soul, spirit, or coming into being. Another difference between Hesiod and Aristophanes 
is the interpretation of what happened after the first emanation of Nix from chaos. Aristophanes makes Nix lay an egg in the nether, gloomy, dark area above hell. This egg is unfertilized, and after many eons, hatches forth Eros, the golden-winged god of love, procreation, sex, and desire. Hesiod, on the other hand, makes a spirit of darkness out of Erebos, instead of the dark, gloomy area above hell. And Erebos and Nyx mate to produce the Aether and the Day. Hesiod then continues that after this, Nyx, as the Earth, produced the stars, the hills, the nymphs, and the sea. This section really makes Hesiod seem to be equating Nyx with Gaia, the Earth. The remainder of the Aristophanic version in the birds, after the hatching of Eros, is most likely poetic invention by Aristophanes, who makes Eros mate with Chaos next in the depths of Tartaros to produce the tribe of birds. The mating of winged Eros with a winged Chaos in the depths of Hell is almost positively an Aristophanic invention. Twisting the logics of myth and philosophy, Aristophanes makes the emanation of God's love mate with the Spirit of God, something which seems very doubtful to have been in the original myths, or else, in the spirit of comedy, Aristophanes was making a pun upon his own name as meaning the highest, noblest love, with the possible sense of a love for God. The god Phanes was another name for Eros. From Aristophanes and Hesiod, then, it is possible to determine that they agree essentially in making the goddess Nyx, or Night, the eldest of the gods. The god of this creation, Chaos, the spirit of God beyond this universal existence, is still the one unity of ultimate being beyond the physical of nature. Nyx is the eldest goddess of emanation into the natural world. After Nyx comes the emanation of her mate, the god of day, and the first resulting offspring in the form of Eros and Eos. The Greek myth then essentially follows the original Ennead of the primordial Egyptian mythology with few substantial changes except that of the birds. Uranos was a Minoan name 
for the father of the Titans. His first Egyptian name was Anu. His mate, the goddess Gaia, was the goddess Nyx. Gaia referred to her as the goddess of Earth, and Nyx referred to her as the goddess of Night. They were the same goddess. Somewhat before, when the Minoans lived in Egypt, Nyx had been known as the goddess Nu. Anu and Nu were the first deities worshipped in the Paleolithic, the day and the night. The Titans were the mythic tribe of gods thought to have been worshipped on Atlantis in the Golden Age before the Great Deluge. Uranus and Nyx, Gia, were the parents of the Titan tribe. At some point in the dim, remote past, one of their offspring replaced them as the leader of the Titan gods. The god that replaced Uranus as the king of the gods was a huge serpent named Ophion and his sister goddess, another large serpent named Isis, she who was the goddess of the corn, replaced Nyx as the queen of the Titans. This portion of the Titanic mythic history is of such unknown antiquity that not much about the rule of Ophion and Isis was still remembered by the later Greek mythographers. This early period of rule for the serpent titans, Ophion and Isis, most likely corresponds to the millennia of the early to middle Neolithic in Egypt, when the Lord Set and the Lady Isis were the most popular and powerful deities of the world's first farming communities. Ophion then is another ancient name for Set. The later Greeks who write of this most distant past also go on to say, however, that the rule of Ophion and Isis as the supreme titans was not permanent, and Uranus and Nyx were able to reestablish their overlordship after some while. This mythic hint of the eventual fall of Neolithic Setian absolute power agrees with the situation of later Egyptian mythology in the much later historical dynastic period that starts with Dynasty Zero at the end of the Neolithic. The future Greek poets and bards describe the end of Neolithic Setian theistic 
agrarian supremacy as a casting of Set and Isis down into the depths of dark Tartaros. This first rebellion of the gods was then unsuccessful, and the god of the day and his mate, the goddess of the night, were able to reassume their thrones above the creation. Uranus and Nyx, Gia, ruled once more before the end of the Neolithic. The serpents of the fertile crop fields, Set and Isis, had fallen, and now they produced new growth and harvests from the gloomy pits of the nether subterran cavernous abyss. After the rebellion of Ophion and his mate, another offspring of the supreme pair made theistic difficulty when Lord Kronos raised his standard on the island of Crete. The date of this next titanic revolt is easier to determine with precision because it must have occurred when the refugees from Memphis and the Delta arrived after the first war between the moon and the sun. The dynasty of night, having lost the war with Upper Egypt, many royals and peers of the lower house of Egypt made the migration to their middle sea colony of Crete. The goddess Nyx then continued her rule from the safe harbors of her island empire, which had for thousands of years been colonized by Egyptians from the Memphis Nome. When this momentous exile of the Memphis dynasty took place at the end of the 5th millennium BAS, there was a great upheaval in the religious beliefs of the new nocturnal Memphis settlers in their former colonial domains round the Vale of Gnosis. The newly exiled Gnosian Memphite dynasts were most likely still feeling a bit hateful towards the Solarists from the Upper Lands who had conquered their ancient homeland. Because of this natural resentment, the exiles most likely felt that it might be a good change for the better if they were to remove as much as possible solar tendencies from their theology. This is the great circumstance of events that led to the revolt of Lord Kronos from the rule of Uranus and Nyx. It was not a revolt against the night, but only a revolt 
against the day. Uranus, the day god, was deposed in the islands. Nyx, the night goddess, ruled almost alone, without Anu, without a horned solar hunter for a mate, except there was a twilight solar hunter from Memphis who, like Lord Osiris, had evolved from antique Anu. Lord Atem, the lower Egyptian god of the setting sun, was like Lord Osiris, the nocturnal sun, a form of the sun god that the islanders of Crete could still abide with. So it wasn't a complete mythic separation with what had gone before, but only a division into the natural halves of the light and the dark. The resolution of this difficulty caused by similitude to solarism seems to have been resolved by a conscious downplay at least at first, of the supremacy of Lord Atem and Lady Nix. Instead, the first exiled dynastic generations seems to have made a decision to elevate the eldest pair of sibling deities to a position of popular power at Gnosis. Most likely, the new Gnosians thought of Kronos and Rhea as the visible public gods of the realm, while Atum and Nyx were the mystic, hidden, absolute gods upon the throne of nearby lofty Olympus. The mythic revolt of Kronos in the Golden Age of the Titans was not then a real revolt at all. Kronos and Rhea were the public and popular deities of perceived everyday administrative rule, while Atum and Nyx were the most holy absolute gods upon the summit of creation. Lord Atem and Osiris were essentially the same god. The sun god was a co-ruler below the earth from hell after the twilight became dark of night. In the islands of the Middle Sea, the language of Memphis and Sais began to evolve into a new speak. Greek was first spoken and written on Crete. Egyptian became Greek. Eventually, the very names of the gods took on a somewhat unusual form. The goddess Nu did not remain Nu. The spelling changed in the new Greek became Nyx 
instead. Autumn, her mate and god of the twilight sun, found a new totem creature to become his familiar animal. The goat was first encountered and made domestic on Crete. The island takes its name from the wild goat, a creature called a Cree-Cree in the new speak. The male Cree-Cree is called an Agrimi or wild one. The god Atem, the twilight horned hunter and lord of nature, was given a new name similar to his new goat totem. Autumn came to be called Zagreus instead. Similar to the male Agrimi Cree goat. Zagreus Atem was the wild goat god of nature. Later he was shown with goat hooves and furry legs to match his horns. Shown as part human and part goat, he was known as Pan. There was even a new god to replace the goddess Nu's mate in the dark seas of night. His name was Okeanos. Okri-Anu, the goat sun god of the dark seas of night, or Nu. His name, as may be seen, must have developed from the vocative salute to the goat sun god. Also note that the similar word, Okros, is the Greek for the dark red color of dry blood that was used to paint the columns of Gnosis. At first, this was Lord Atem, the hidden wild one, when he was the ruler of the Middle Sea. Zagreus and Pan and Osiris are the same lower Egyptian god Atem. Later, as so often happened, with the development of myth, this epithet of Atem came to be thought of as a unique god of the sea, eventually becoming Poseidon and Neptune with the advent of Olympian religion. In the palace of Minos, at Gnosis, Sir Arthur Evans discovered a pillar crypt where bull sacrifices were made at two pillars. These pillars of the crypt had each a different inscription carved upon them. One inscription was of a Labris and the other was of a Trident. Pillars and columns in the Minoan religion of Atlantis were a representation of God. These pillars were then meant to be either Atem 
or Kronos, the forms of one of these gods, when on land or else on the sea. Atem, Lord of the Sun, Land, and Sea. Okeanos, Mate of Nu, Goddess of Night, Earth, and Sea. Kronos, God of Love, Light, Air, and Fire. Okeanos, Mate of Rhea, Goddess of dark, streaming liquids. Was it the supreme god of the summit of Olympus that the Minoans were sacrificing to in his land and sea forms? The supreme lord Atem Zagreus? Or was it instead the city's patron god, Kronos? the son of Zagreus and Nix. Was Okeanos a form of Atem Zagreus, or was Okeanos a form of his son, Kronos? The idea of the supreme god of the sea seems to fit better with Lord Atem as the solar hunter companion of Nix. The main attribute of the night earth goddess Nix, or Nu, was her identity as the primordial sea from which the creation of existence did emanate. Since the god of the pillars in the crypt at Gnosis is shown as either his sacrificial labries or hunting trident, the god's role as master of the hunt must be of a special importance in this chamber of ritual lust and sacrifice. Therefore, Unless this is a much evolved form of ritual based on later mythic additions, the god referred to in the pillars of the crypt must be Lord Atem and his forms of Master Hunter on land and sea, Zagreus, the goat god of the wild hunt on land and Okeanos, the hunter companion of Nyx, the dark goddess of the primordial sea of night. A few more points for the opposite viewpoint here. The goddess Rhea was the primary goddess of the sacrifice, in that she was seen as presiding over the making of the sacrifice with its later offertory libation. Kronos, as her mate, was then the wielder of the Labries with his symmetrical blades. The Labries itself was most likely 
not used for hunting, but for the meat preparation of the sacrifice. The Labrys was also a sign of the order within nature, death producing life. The trident, on the other hand, was a weapon of the hunt that may have been used as a Setian instrument once before. Perhaps the trident pillar was a sign of the sacred hunt, and the Labry's pillar was a sign of the sacred sacrifice. Then, of course, Kronos was a god of fire and light and love, things which seemed to go well with activities after the sacrifice, while Lady Rhea was a scavenger, collectress, and lioness, guardian of the life-giving blood for the following rites of nourishing libations. Kronos and Rhea, the visible ruling divinities of Gnosis, had the fantastic griffin as their totemistic creature, and the griffin had the head of a bird of prey, the body of a lion, and the tail of the serpent. This was because these gods could morph into either of these three creatures depending on the situation. Rhea could be a bird of prey and helped purify the excarnating corpses of the dead. Or she could morph into a lioness instead for hunting or defense. The griffin was her normal form. Kronos was portrayed in the same forms as well. What is common about the bird of prey and the lion is that they devour flesh and blood. They are both types of natural hunter, though it is their flesh devouring or bloodthirsting practices that are paramount in their choice as totem creatures. This is not to say that these gods were in any way vicious or cruel. These were simply sides of their characters into which they could morph from the griffin. Both these deities were also the god spirit of love and procreation moving within the entirety of nature, the union of opposites and gender. The natural order of existence was composed of these differing realities of necessity. So then were the gods of emanation the same. Existence was life and death. The Labrys was symmetrical. 
It is possible then that the pillars were the union of different pairs of the Minoan pantheon or Setian Ennead. The hunting pillar with the trident inscribed upon it could have been merely a sign of the sacred hunt, whether land or sea. The preeminent gods of the hunt were the solar hunter Atem or Zagreus Pan and the night huntress of the dark primordial sea of first creation, the goddess Nyx. The other pillar with the Labries inscribed upon it, then, could very well have been the pillar of Kronos and Rhea, the gods of fire, light, love, procreation, streaming liquids, and sacrifice. Here in my garden Where I seek my peace When darkness creeps upon me Given the solace I see I will be waiting I will be waiting I will be waiting Right I'm 
one last question about the pillar crypts of Atlantis and Gnosis is why were the sacrifices made in tombs of the dead? The blood was nourishment. The living had their feast on the flesh and blood of the sacrificial bull or other animal, usually horned, while the spirits of the dead ancestors in the crypts below the surface got their nourishment from blood libations poured for them by a priestess of Rhea or Isis. This ancient traditional practice had its start at some point in the Stone Age with the worship of the serpent god Set and the serpent goddess Isis. The serpent priestess of Isis fed blood and remains from the hunt to the sacred serpents of the tribal cavern. Beneath the pillar crypts at Gnosis, Evans discovered drains of piping that flowed downwards into serpentariums under the floor. When performing her ritual, the priestess of Isis also poured blood over the soil where lay the bones of the ancestors. The sacred serpents and the ancestors both received blood libations because they were each thought to be Chthonia, born from the earth. Nourishment from the poured blood helped the human ancestors buried in the cavern crypt to reincarnate in the dark underworld of the goddess Nyx. The gods were satisfied with the portion neither the tribe, the sacred serpents, or the ancestors had any use for, and that was the bones and fat burnt in the cavern hearth fire of Eros. The smoke from the barbecuing beef on the grill, along with the bones and fat in the fire, did waft up to the gods on Olympus, where it pleasured them. So had dealt Prometheus since before the great deluge. An excellent description of the Greek sacrificial rite may be found in the Dionysiaca of Nonos. Nonos was the last writer of Greek epic poetry, and he lived in the Egypt of the 15th century BAS. At the start of Book 5, Nonos writes of the sacrificial banquet given by Cadmos when he had gained the victory over the dragon, the giants, and the Boeotian tribes of native Pelasgians. The ritual is performed 
for Ares, the god of war. As soon as Cadmus had reaped the snaky crop of tooth-planted battles and shorn the stubble of the giants, pouring the blood libation to Ares as the firstling feast of harvest slaughter, As the first rite in the sacrifice, he sprinkled the two horns on both sides with barley grains. He drew out and bared the falchion knife, which hung at his thigh alongside by an Assyrian strap, and cut the top hairs of the long-horned head with the hilted blade. Theoclemus grasped the heifer's horn and drew back the throat. Thyestes cut through the sinews of the neck with a double-edged axe. The stone altar of Athena Anka was reddened with the smear of the creature's blood. Nanas Dionysiaca 5.1 This passage is important for several reasons and more than simply as a description of Greek sacrificial ritual. Nanus is writing his Dionysian epic in the century of the Roman Empire's fall in the West and he places Cadmus and the founding of Thebes some 1,500 years earlier during the Dark Ages after the Fourth War between the Moon and the Sun. While this period of decline after the Fourth War does seem to be the era of conflict between the mythic giants and the new Olympian gods, as Nonos relates, it is most likely a period much later than the founding of Thebes. The myths of Cadmus and the giants occurring together, then, is a combination of myths from different historical eras. Since the entire mythic history and religion of Hellas and Atlantis was transferred down to later generations by way of Bardic oral transmission, myths could very often become layered and mixed, much like the artifact remains preserved in the soil. This seems to be what is happening here with the founding of Thebes mixed with the later layer of the giant Olympian War that occurred in the Dark Ages. Thebes must have been founded in the Minoan epic of Atlantis and the simmering conflict of the Giants and Olympians didn't take place until after the fourth and last war with its disintegration of the crumbling unity of Imperial Atlantis. This is what is meant by the first line of the sacrifice passage 
from Nonos. As soon as Cadmus had reaped the snaky crop of tooth-planted battles and shorn the stubble of the giants, pouring the blood libation to Ares as the firstling feast of harvest slaughter, Dionysiaca 5.1 Cadmus is mistakenly seen as a leader of the new Olympian generation and not as an earlier Minoan colonizer like he was. The new Olympian generation were those Egyptian Greeks that made a migration back into the Middle Sea some centuries after the sea raiders and the Libyans conquered Lower Egypt to end the Fourth War. These sea raider conquerors of Lower Egypt, having eventually become assimilated into mainland Egyptian culture, then returned to Hellas and the islands in some numbers a while later when the lands of the Middle Sea were still dark with barbarism and chaos after the final collapse of Atlantis. The giants, on the other hand, were those remnant worshippers of Gia Nix with ancestors who had belonged to the old imperial order of Atlantis. These were the remains of Setian Minoan civilization with its priestesses, soldiers, and rulers who wished to reestablish the worship of Kronos, Rhea, and Night. It is these gigantic remnants that Nonos refers to as the snaky crop of dragon teeth and the shorn stubble of the giants. It seems that the bones and fangs of Atlantis were arising from the dead. The great serpents of Set and Isis were producing another brood in the vaporous cavern of High Parnassus. The dragon son of night was once more bathing in the nearby pooling waters of Eos. Cadmus changes the sea-end waters of love into the red of slaughter for his new Olympian god, Ares. Pouring the blood libation to Ares as the firstling feast of harvest slaughter. Dionysiaca 5.1 The remultiplying dragon eggs of Dionysus and Persephone are crushed in their hell-mist chasm of Nyx, and Rhea is forced to pour the regenerating blood of a new harvest into a pool red from slaughter and war. 
the Titan God Eros morphs into a new permanent form, and the griffin is no more a creature of opposing moods. Love now becomes hate, and his sister wife curses the land of Thebes as the winged lioness of lasting ill omen, the plague-bringing sphinx nemesis. The remainder of this passage from Nonos shows the futility of this simmering warfare between day and night, become now that of the Olympians and giants. Cadmus, after his slaughter harvest of the Setian giants, then proceeds to offer a sacrifice of a bull to Ares. One thing is, though, this is not Kronos Eros of the natural order. This is the new Olympian god of one-sided hate and war. Yet, notwithstanding this, Cadmus makes the same bull and blood sacrifice at the altar of the new knight, Athena Anka, as had always been done by the giants for Nyx when they ruled Atlantis from Knossos. The new religion of Zeus, Ares, Apollo, and Artemis has somehow become degenerate in its new, evolved, Olympian form. The natural order of the old titan-giant religion of night is no longer intrinsic to this new agglomeration of Olympic day and night. For some reason, the new unified religion of the Olympians did not reflect the natural order of existence as well as did the old religion of night. When the sea raiders of nocturnal Atlantis made their last conquest over Lower Egypt, they remained on to live and rule in their former homelands near Memphis and the Delta. Within several generations, these last raiding conquerors had become reacclimated to the Egyptian sun and the mixture of the solar and lunar in religion that was popular in the fertile lands of the lower Nile. The communication of these new ideas from Egypt back to the lands of the Middle Sea was the spark which caused the new Olympian movement in Greek religion. The foremost change was that of the admixture of solarism. Zeus was made the chief solar 
deity ruling over the entire pantheon of gods from atop a new Mount Olympus, an Olympus of mainland Hellas, not of Crete. This in itself was not a huge difference since Zagreus and Atem and Pan had always been of equal or lesser importance than was the matriarchy of Nix. These gods had been the nocturnal solar hunter, the sun god in the underworld ruled by night. Zeus, who was originally Zagreus, was a new sky god of day, more like unto the Egyptian sun gods Re or Kepera, and this new Zeus was always at odds with his new mate, the goddess Hera, who originally had been Rhea. This new solar Zeus was the ruler, not a co-ruler or a sub-ruler like Pan or Zagreus had been. Apollo and Artemis were the new solar offspring of this new solar Zeus and by a different mother than Hera, Rhea. Apollo was at first a titan as well in the old religion of Atlantis. The titan gods were all deities of the old nocturnal religion, though they mostly were of a lower ranking of the gods below that of the main Ennead. Some of the main Ennead gods of Atlantis are not given as belonging to this lesser Ennead of deities, though Kronos and Rhea are still given as the visible administrators ruling Gnosis. The new god Apollo then was an emanation of the divine intellect of God. His other attribute he took from the titan Helios, the sun, another name for the nocturnal sun god of Atlantis. Apollo, however, was a sun god of day, like his father Zeus, and he was not a hunter of night who had his realm among the ghosts of the dead in the underworld of Nix.
Calling you 
through flesh that burns Breaking down your will Moving for the kill Oh sister, come for me Embrace me, assure me Hey sister Sister